Welcome to the School for Writers podcast. Yes, that's right, School for Writers. We are slowly transitioning from business school for writers to school for writers. What this does is this allows us to focus on all aspects of creativity and writing, not just the professional business money-making parts of it. So we're here to serve you on every level of writing that there is with a focus on books. So super, super excited to be here and extremely excited to be bringing you this interview with my dear, dear friend, Kevin Smokler. Kevin Smokler, who's known as Ouija on Twitter and most of the internet, is a writer, documentary filmmaker, and host with a focus on popular culture. He's the author of books Rat Pack America, A Love Letter to 80s Teen Movie, which came out in 2016, and it's been called an absolute delight by Library Journal. He also is an author of the essay collection, Practical Classics, 50 Reasons to Reread 50 Books You Haven't Touched Since High School, which came out in 2013, and The Atlantic Wire called it truly enjoyable. And he's the editor of Bookmark Now, Writing in Unreadly Times, a San Francisco Chronicle notable book of 2005. His essays and criticisms have appeared in the LA Times, Salon, Fast Company, BuzzFeed, Vulture, the San Francisco Chronicle, The Decider, and National Public Radio. Kevin has been everywhere. He's such an impressive author. I'm super excited. In 2020, he transitioned to documentary filmmaker, and he co-directed and co-produced the feature-length documentary film Vinyl Nation on the contemporary renaissance of vinyl records in America. Super, super exciting. Vinyl Nation has been called a lively, engaging affair by Film Threat and a populist unifier by Salon. And it's called a must-watch by Lauren Murray Fleming because it made me understand why people geek out over vinyl. I was like, I'm just not cool enough. I just don't get it. And it made me get it. And it made me, I'm not going to lie, it made me feel a little cool. It made me feel like a little bit of hipster. So if you want to go out there and feel like a little bit of hipster, I highly suggest seeing the Vinyl Nation film. But first, before you go out there and watch it, I highly suggest that you listen to this episode of the School for Writers podcast, where Kevin and I are going to talk to you about how you can build a successful writing career by defining success on your own and by following your passion and creativity. So enjoy the show. Welcome to Business School for Writers, where we help storytellers like you ditch the starving artist cliche and thrive. I'm your host, Lauren Marie Fleming, and I am obsessed with the power of stories. I've seen the way stories heal writers, readers, and whole communities. But I've also seen the way we silence marginalized voices and discourage people from pursuing a career as a writer. Which is why I'm here today, helping you to ditch the lies you've been told about whose story matters and instead embrace the truth that the world needs your story now more than ever. I am living proof that it is possible to build a thriving career as a writer, and I created Business School for Writers to show you exactly how you can write more, publish more, and make more money as a storyteller. Welcome to your virtual classroom. Welcome to your cheerleading squad. Welcome to Business School for Writers. struggling with trying to figure out which of your ideas you should write on or how to define your success for yourself as a writer or you maybe not even writing yet you dream of being a writer but you haven't sat down to start doing it yet 
Kevin and I are gonna give you a couple tips in this episode, but I wanted to come on here and give a little plug for journaling. Yes, you probably guessed it. I love journaling. I think that it is the starting point for any kind of writing career you wanna have. Whether you wanna be a Pulitzer Prize winner or whether you just wanna be able to sit down and explore your own thoughts or anything in between, however you define success, or if you need help defining success, guess who is here to help you? Your journal. Your journal is this support system that's always right there with you. So I love journaling and I have put together a series of resources for you at businessschoolforwriters.com slash journaling. When you're there, you can also download my guide to journaling during difficult times. I know that between political strife and COVID and a global pandemic and life, that right now is kind of difficult. So I put together a guide for you on how you can use this amazing tool called journaling and some of the techniques that have helped me in the past to overcome even the hardest moments of my life, to thrive even in the deepest depths of despair and the deepest glories of joy and to how to find that and how to define success for myself as a writer, how to start thinking about which book I wanna write and how to get in a routine of writing. All of those things I do because of my journal. And I offer techniques and tips on that to all of you for free. So head to businessschoolforwriters.com slash journaling and download your free guide today. Hello and welcome Kevin Smokler. What's up? Hey, Lauren Fleming. Thanks for having me. Thanks for asking. I'm so excited. You're our first dude on the podcast, and I feel like you're a good oh my dude God. to have as the first. Hopefully not no the pressure. last. Like, hopefully I won't, I, I won't bungle this in such a way where you're like, well, we're not making that mistake again. Right. I've been on podcasts where they like expect me to represent all queer women, so I'm really excited about you having to represent all men. Yeah, like, totally. All of them in the world. Are they ever like, well, could you begin by spelling queer for me? Is it, is it Q or is it K-W? <laughs> I never get that, but I do get people being like, is it, isn't it offensive to call yourself that? And I'm like, well, that's a whole different podcast story. Yes, yes. But today we're here to not talk about how to spell queer. <laughs> we're here to talk about building a writing career, following passion and curiosity, because you have built an amazing career on that, on geeking out over a subject and writing about it. And so I just want to kind of start with this one question that I love starting with, and that is why writing? I have always, I've always written, like I've always, and, and not because like when I was five, I had some deep need to express myself. I, re- I really didn't. But it was, uh, it was the kind of thing where as a kid who was uh, uh, diminutive of stature and not athletic in, in like a super athletic town, like, like Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I grew up is, is the, the home of the University of Michigan, which is of course an august academic institution. And everybody went to the library, everybody liked to read that I grew up with and all that kind of stuff, but everybody played sports. Like, like Ann Arbor is just that kind of place. Um, and I was not good at the primary activity in the place where I grew up, but I was really good, even though I, I can't say I liked the process that much, I was really good if someone was like, if, if I was like, you know, tossing a ball around with my friends, they would point to, they would point to a mailbox and they would say, Hey, what's that? Um, and I would go like, I would go like, Oh, well, that's a mailbox monster. And it's only there on Tuesdays because that's when the, that's when it eats the, uh, you know, it eats little kids riding by on bicycles. So don't ride too close to the mailbox monster. And it would just happen that way. 
Um, I, I don't have a difficult time kind of firing off my imagination in a lot of different directions. So writing was the, was the natural, for me, was the natural way that I, I made use of that creatively because I, I, I don't write all that different than the way I talk. In, in fact, that's what people say when they read my books. They say, it just sounds like you talking. And I was like, well, that's, that's cool. Like, I don't know if that's a compliment or an insult, but like, for me, it's like, it's like, I don't know any other way. I'm, I'm always a little surprised. Like when you, when you like read a novel and then you hear the author being interviewed and they don't sound anything like the person that you uh, read in the book, but I'm, there's no difference between the two for me. So um, it's always been the way that I was good at expressing uh, the ideas I had and the, um, the direction that my mind went. It is only recently, it is only as an adult that I have liked the process of doing it. Uh, and I think I just had to, I, I had to have a good long amount of time between like writing is something you do to be creative versus like writing papers in school, like, like writing papers that were like mandatory and, or, and, and forced upon you. Um, so writing is an activity one one does uh, one does for one's pleasure. That 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 it took a long time for me to get there, and I, I think I'm like like now at the at the at the terribly young age of forty seven. I think I'm there finally. Oh my gosh, so many good gems just right in that opening start. I'm just to start with that last <laughs> one you said. Yes, I think that so often writing is this thing that we're forced to do in school, right? It doesn't get to be pleasurable. And then if you want to be a writer, it's the thing that you have to do for a magazine or something on all that stuff that sells that doesn't really go. Or if you want to be a writer, like it's copywriting that's like to get someone to buy something. So often writing, even if you, one, you're not given permission to write, or two, when you are given permission to write, you're like, told what you have to write and at what time you have to get it in and how many words it has to be and what it has to cover. So I love that as an adult, like I, that's a really good question. I don't know when I actually started liking the process and I'm not sure I still like it. I love it, but I'm not sure I like it. <laughs> I'm not sure Ed and I have still gotten to that part yet. So I love that. I also, um, I also loved that you talked about stories just kind of happening and writing as a way to harness them, because I think that that's, actually what you do in your books, like you harness this creativity, this curiosity, this passion you have, and writing just happens to be the way to harness that. So I love that. Like, it's not about, you can enjoy it and on every level, like curiosity and everything. It's, it's not just this thing that you do because you're told to, although you have deadlines, but it's this thing that you are, have curiosity and passion. So I'm wondering if little Kevin, was he encouraged to write or was he discouraged from becoming a writer? I had no idea what I wanted to do for a living when I was younger. Like I, I, I had seen adults around and I knew what they did for a living. And I think growing up in like a super academic place like Ann Arbor, it was like, what everybody was encouraged to do was like, was like go to school and be a student and get the most out of that experience. And what you're supposed to do for a living will sort of naturally uh, make itself known from, from being, or, uh, from just learning and becoming a smarter person. I, I, think, I think that was a real advantage of growing up in a college town is like, there was some currency behind like knowing shit and being wise. And, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm always really appreciative of where I grew up with because not only was I not burdened with like, I don't know, this is, this is an example from like 1952 or something, like growing up with like the Colgate factory down the street and being told like that 
that's what you do for a living or like, and my parents both worked for themselves. So it wasn't like there was a family business I was supposed to go into. And also my parents were both psychologists and I, I don't know, psychology doesn't strike me as a career where people, where, where parents are like, well, we fully expect you to sit in a chair all day and, and, and listen to I, people's yeah. trauma. Like, <laughs> um, like, I, I know they enjoyed what they do, um, but my, my, my father used to joke, he said, you say, Kevin, there's a reason you don't see any 75 year old psychologists. It's like, it's like you get to, it, it's a profession that has a real, a real finite um, lifespan because it's just hard to listen to, to listen to, um, to uh, uh, people's difficult lives all day long. I, so I, I wasn't discouraged from it, but I wasn't really encouraged to do anything in particular. Um, I was a creative writing major in college, which is only interesting in that I went to Johns Hopkins, where basically everybody there was either going to medical school or aiming to go, you know, 60 miles down the road to work in government or in a think tank in Washington, D.C. So uh, the, the writing seminars program at Johns Hopkins was this weird thing where you definitely had some people who like wanted to be novelists and poets. And some of them became novelists and poets. Most of them became, you know, secondary or college educated or college level, you know, creative writing instructors. Uh, and then you had like, like the sort of redheaded stepchildren of us who, who wanted to, who, who didn't really know, but um, saw all the offerings of the department as kind of a big buffet. Uh, and when I was there, like one of those offerings was you could go like shadow someone at the Baltimore Sun for a summer. And, uh, and, and you got academic credit for that and you had to go find another job to pay your bills. But like, but it was, it was essentially like, like, like working at a major metropolitan newspaper. Like you had to do some dumb shit, like, like, you know, get coffee for people and open the mail and stuff like that. But like, you know, I, I got placed in, on the editorial desk. And, and, and so I got to sit in on editorial meetings when people endorsed you know, political candidates. And I got to, and every once in a while, they'd be like, they'd be like okay, it's Tuesday, it's a slow news day. You, know, uh, you have any op-ed ideas? Um, and that was an amazing like, like opportunity for someone who was 19. Uh, most of the time I didn't, but like, um, but there was something about like the sort of, yeoman or yo woman's quality of like of like just going to work and writing and at the end of the day it was done and the end of the day and you got to like have lunch with your colleagues and drink with them afterwards there was something about the ordinariness of that that i really liked because in my mind what it did is it made this this distinction where writing does not have to always be the truest expression of your soul it can be but if it's always that that's a whole lot of pressure and there's going to be a lot of days where you're just not there. But if it can sometimes be that, if it can be both and, if it can sometimes be the truest expression of your soul, if it can sometimes just be a letter you wrote to someone you went to summer camp with, like, that's cool too. Because like the letter feels doable. And the letter you can ratchet up to be the truest expression of your soul. I, I, I feel like I'm going a lot of different places without it. I loved it though. Because that's <laughs> so true. I think that we make... We make writing so precious that we don't do it. You actually gave me one of the biggest pieces of advice in my writing career that has stuck with me. You gave it to me. We were sitting 
at Wordstock in Portland and it was my final year of law school and I was trying to decide whether to just follow the path of lawyer that everyone said I should do or follow the path of writer that I wanted to do. And you said that there is, and I was like thinking about signing up for all these things. I was like, should I go back to school and become a writer? Should I pay for this course or do this thing? And you said, people will spend thousands and thousands of dollars being told what they need to do to write to avoid having to actually sit down and write. And the only way to be a writer is to sit down and write. And I think that that idea of like, yeah, it can be a job, it can be passionate, it can be the truest expression of your soul, it can be so much, but you gotta do it for it to be anything. And I love that you learned that at that position. I actually worked for a magazine that was my first um, job outside of college. I was an intern. So it's not how I paid my bills, but I showed up every day and I worked my butt off and I learned that writing is simply just showing up every day and working your butt off. And that was the best experience I had. And so I I felt that story, like that story resonated with me. It's like, yes, it's a job. It's also the truest expression of your soul at the same time. Yeah. And it can be both of those things. I I think there's something, I I am really taken by the idea that like, like I'm not an athlete, but I think there's something really interesting about the way athletes train and the way like, you know, if it's time for, if it's, if it's, the last two minutes of a World Cup game, and 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 Megan Rapino has to kick a has to do a, a a sudden death kick or something like that. I, I'm I'm just revealing I don't know anything about soccer, sudden death like, kick. I like yeah, it. you know you know like I, I'm sorry whatever they call it after the game is over and both teams kick. Your I'm, guess is as good as mine. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's even if you're Megan Rapino, it is too terrifying for it to feel like, oh my God, this is the first time I've ever done this. This is the singular time I will do this. The whole world is watching and I gotta be great. It's too scary even for Megan Rapino. It has to feel like something you've done a hundred times before. And I promise you every athlete that's the best at what they do goes through that. Like if you're, if you're uh, a LeBron James or Serena Williams or any of these people, even in the most important moment of your chosen athletic competition, you are doing something that you have trained for your whole adult life. You've done it a thousand times before. And that way, even though the stakes are higher, it doesn't feel all that much different. And I, I approach, I approach writing that way. Like, I'm like, I'm like, yeah, like I want to say this thing that is so important to me, absolutely right. um, And absolutely perfectly. And I'll get there if it feels like when I approach the keyboard, it's not like the whole world is watching. It's like, oh, hi, hi, yeah, you, yeah, I know how to do this. Like, there's something about kind of sneaking up on it, which is really, which is really great to me. Um, and, and to me feels so, so much more doable than like, than like expecting to be like Megan Rapino when I sit down at the keyboard. Like that, that, that just, I'm not gonna be Megan Rapino. That's scares, too intimidating. So I'd rather just try and be me. Um, and from or little old ordinary me, something, something, something great emerges. Little ordinary you is pretty fabulous too. I always Thank tell you. myself like, yeah, you're not going to be Stephen King. You're not going to be Cheryl Strayed. You're not going to be J.K. Rowling, but they're not going to be you either. So exactly. take that. All you can be is you. All they can be is them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love the Kevin Smokler that you are. Thank you. So let's talk about one of the things that I find paralyzing. There are kind of two things that I hear from my clients and from people who talk to me about writing and in myself, paralyzing. One, making writing too precious. So it has to be amazing and perfect and the best Pulitzer Prize winning thing that'll be taught for years and studied forever. Perfect, passionate words. 
um, which we already talked about. And two, I have 30,000 ideas. How do I choose? And I was wondering to start us on that, where your ideas come from, because your books have various different topics to them, but they are books that delve into a topic. You have Bookmark Now, Writing in Unreaderly Times, which I love. I love your titles. Practical Classics, 50 Reasons to Reread 50 Books You Haven't Touched Since High School. Brat Pack America, my favorite of your books. A Love Letter to 80s Teen Movies. And now you have a documentary called Vinyl Nation. It's on the contemporary renaissance of vinyl records in America, which I have watched and I have loved. And now I really want to buy vinyl. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going to put it, but I'm going to start. Mm. And these are all... They're similar in that they're explorations of a topic that you find interesting. And that's what has become your signature. Like it's like sitting down, you know more, you are like a walking encyclopedia, you know, more than anyone else I know. And you are able to explain that in interesting ways. But I'm sure that as somebody who has all these things you're passionate about, all these things, you know, that can be overwhelming sometimes. So I'm wondering, how do you choose? How do you decide what you're going to write about? You know, I it's a documentary, I, make a documentary film about sure, it. Sure, sure. I mean, generally what I generally what I do is I, I, I do not feel comfortable unless I sort of have a direction to run in. And I think that's positive and negative. Like I like to have purpose because it makes it easier to get out of bed in the morning and sit down and do the work. On the other hand, like like you can't always be queuing up the next two and three year project. Because like that's that's only playing one instrument in one way. Like like and and I think that's not that that's not making use of the gifts of of creativity. And I and you look at you look at people who do creative things that you admire, you know, Cheryl Strayed does not always write 330 page memoirs. Like and, and she she could and she'd be very good at it, but that would not be taking advantage of all that is inside Cheryl Strayed. Um, uh, Stephen King writes novels, short stories, some under his own name, some not under his own name, some horror and fantasy, some not. Like those are those are the different kinds of, of things you want to take advantage of because if you're able to do this and you're interested in doing this, it's interested in doing this sort of thing, it's a real gift. And you want to make sure like, like if you can run, that you run fast and slow, you run sprints and long distance, you run, you know, you run in nature and on, on concrete, like, like, yeah, like, like, we're not given many gifts and you want to make sure that like, like, that you fully exercise them all. Um, I, so generally when I have an idea, I have to first kind of be rigorous with it and decide like what size idea is it? Um, is it, is it something I can spend two years on? Um, is it something I could spend two weeks on? Uh, is it something I could spend an hour on? And, and, and you have to be, and, and there's no, that's the kind of thing you only learn by trial and error. And sometimes you'll make mistakes. Sometimes you'll think something is a, is a, is a book length project and it's not, it's an essay length project. Um, I've been, I've been trying for a long time. I, part of the way I come up with ideas is I say something to myself that sounds outrageous. And then I try and try and rationalize it somehow. Like um, I, I, I was having many, 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 a couple of years back now, I had a conversation with someone where I was like, I was like, you know what? I think Die Hard and When Harry Met Sally are the same movie. And they're like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, I'm not sure what I'm talking about, but like, let me see if there's an interesting way to make that argument. Let me see if, 
Let me see if there's something there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've never, I've never like concept. I've never actually gone that far with it. But like, I guess a more true example of something that's kind of that size is a few years back. I did something because it was the 30th anniversary of the Lost Boys, and um, and I, I, I always loved that movie. But I remember very distinctly like that movie being something that people mostly loved in retrospect. Like I was only, I was only about 13 when that movie came out, but it was not like, it was not like the school hallways were buzzing with talk about the Lost Boys. I remember it was a kind of movie that seemed to be at the movie theater and then at the video store very fast. So I remember thinking to myself, well, like, why do we care about a movie that was sort of not successful, not particularly successful in its day on its 30th anniversary? Because I was assigned this by someone. And so that was the basis of that of that particular particular project. Like like, it, and, and it became less about the Lost Boys and more like, what is a cult movie? Like, what is it? What is a cult movie? And why do we give that label to things? I so the the, the practical answer to your question, where does one one where do one's ideas come from? I, I think it's one of those things where it's like it's it, it's a little bit like cooking. You know, you like find a dish that you make well, and then you riff on that. Like I, I get ideas by finding something I'm interested in and then asking a lot of questions why I'm interested and then trying to take that thing and, and draw kind of an absurd connection to something else. I started drinking coffee 10 years ago. I had never, I never had coffee as a teenager. I started drinking coffee in my thirties. Uh, and I was like, I was like, well, that's really interesting. But like, what is that? Is that an idea? Like, I don't know. And then I was like, I remembered like visiting a, a, I think I think it was like Louisville, Kentucky, or something like that. I remember visiting Louisville, Kentucky, and asking like at the hotel, at the desk of the hotel where I was staying, "Where's good coffee around here?" And they're like, "Oh, you should try this place just up the street." And I said, "Okay, I'll do that." And they was like, "Yeah, that's how we know like downtown Louisville would arrive when that coffee place moved in." And I'm like, "Does coffee?" And I, I like said this out loud as I was walking over there. I said, "Does coffee make red states bluer?" Hmm. And I was like, "I mean, that that's a that's a." that's either a great idea or an absurd idea. And I was like, but worth exploring, isn't it? Like, like, I mean, you said it, it wasn't just, it wasn't just like, it wasn't just a past time. So every time I have an idea, no matter how big or small, I write it down. Some of them I go back to, some of I don't, some of them I don't. I'm always really honest about like, okay, like maybe I'm not at the right time in life where I should do that idea some ideas you like you you have because you really have something to prove and maybe you've like grown up and you don't have that thing to prove anymore so you don't really need to do that thing and then some of them are like like of the 10 you've written down like which is the one you keep circling back to like which is the one that like like bothers you in the shower and those are the ones that I usually try and push forward and then the first thing you do when you're pushing it forward is you say like how big is this like how big is it how big could it be because and that, like I said, that's only, that only comes from trial and error, but you don't want to, you don't want to spend a lot of time like trying to stretch a two week idea into a two year idea. You're not doing yourself for the idea any favors. And then what do you do with it? Once you like, you're like, okay, I chose this idea. How do you run with it? Or how do you like, let's take that just one step back. How do you know if this is an idea for an essay or a book or a journal topic that you just talk about with your friends? I'm a really big believer in like write tool, write 
project. Like I, and I think that comes from like not being a handy person. Like I don't look at a, I don't look at a, at a, at a, at a door that isn't opening correctly and, and say, oh, I know exactly what to do with that. Like I need to like, someone needs to point me to the right tool for that project. So I'm a big believer in that. And, and when Chris and I were trying to come up with, when Chris and I started talking about the idea for Vinyl Nation, one of the things we, the first question we asked, and I was, he came up with it and I was glad because it showed me we were thinking the same way, was like, does this need to be a movie? Because if it doesn't, we're going to spend a lot of time and money and effort trying to make it something that it's not supposed to be. And could it be a 10 episode podcast series? Could it be a book? Could it be all of those things, any of those things? And we finally decided that since this was a story about the physical manifestation of something that is invisible, music, you have to be able to see it. Like you have to be like, like you're not taking advantage, you're not fully realizing what the story is in a non-visual medium. I mean, I listen, I suppose it could have been a book of photographs, but like you want to hear it too, of course, if it's music. Okay, so you brought up the film again. I am a big fan of this film. I'm a big, I've been telling everyone I know they need to watch it. I don't get, I didn't until I watched the film, why people were obsessed with vinyl. I remember, again, I have gone to many writers conferences with you and listening to a, a panel where people asked you if writing was disappearing now that the internet was around. And this was like 2000, probably 2011. I think it probably would have the same word stock in sure, Portland in sure. 2011. And you said, listen, the number one rising part of the music industry is vinyl. And that kind of became a thing in my head. And then every time I visit you, I we listen to your vinyl records. And so when you had this book out, I just, I still, I was like, I don't get it. Like, am I not cool enough? I worked in a record store as a kid, but we had cassettes. It was a cassette store. Yeah. I think we were past records, just cassettes and CDs, but am I not cool enough? Like, what is this about? And then I saw Vinyl Nation and I realized that it's not about being cool. It's about community. So let's talk about Let's first talk about how I want to, I have so many questions because I'm somebody who also wants to make movies. I have an undergrad in film and sure. so I have so many questions about the, the transition from somebody who started with Bookmark Now, which is a collection of essays on a topic to two books about a specific topic that's kind of like a collection of essays as well. They're all, you could read like, I love Brat Pack America because I can just open it I can watch a Brat Pack movie, an 80s teen movie, and open it and read along with the movie, which is like my favorite thing to do to geek out. I love good 80s teen movies. I love good teen movies. And so being able to geek out with that was great. And now you've made a movie where you can geek out with other vinyl people. So how did that transition feel? Was it a natural transition or did you have to learn a whole new set of skills to be able to go to a different medium? I don't know if it was a perfectly natural transition because there were, I had like worked on film sets and been like adjacent to film projects before, but I'd never like made a whole movie myself. So I definitely had to learn several things about the process of movie making. Embarrassingly, making a movie about vinyl records. I didn't know the first thing about music licensing, which was, uh, which was, which was a probably my, my biggest face plant at the beginning of this movie, I said, I said to Chris, who has made movies before, my co-director, I said, like, I really think like the closing credits should be that, that song by R.E.M. I'm going to DJ because it begins, like the second line of the song is I'm collecting vinyl. 
I'm going to DJ at the end of the world. And he's like, yeah, that's so not going to happen. Like, um, I was like, why not? And he's like, well, there's this thing called music licensing. You can't just put a bunch of music in a movie. And I was like, oh, okay. So I had to learn a lot of those like very like nuts and bolts mechanics of movie making. And, um, and I had to learn like, I had to learn like how to work with someone else. I mean, Chris and I were very fortunate in that we have complementary skills, meaning he's good at what I'm not good at and vice versa. But we're both also good at certain things like, like what is important about a story and how do you need to tell it? Like we both know how to do that. And we have a lot of respect for each other. We have a lot of respect for how the other makes us better. And so working with someone else was very, very different for me. Like I, you know, a book, I, I, a book is like you, you say, yes, thank you. When you get the opportunity and you go off for a long time and you do it and you kind of send, you kind of send dispatches back from where you are. You're like a war correspondent almost. And, and a movie's just not like that. A movie's like, like in, there, there are inherently other personalities in the room with you. And for each one, you have to kind of understand what that person wants, like spiritually out of the experience and how they want to work with you. You know, when we were, when we were hiring cinematographers, because we don't know how to film stuff, like Chris was like, we need someone who has a strong point of view because that person is going to be the third leg on this stool with the two of us. Uh, and we're like, okay, let's, let's do that. And when we started interviewing cinematographers, there was an awful lot of cinematographers who were like, you're the director, you get to do whatever you want. It's my job to realize your vision. And we were like, well, that would be really nice if we actually had a vision, but we don't. <laughs> so, um, so we needed people who, we needed people who like already, who, who were, who were like, who were like, listen, like I have a signature look, like it's adaptable, but like I, if, if you want me to film something that looks like a, it's not going to, because my stuff looks like G. And so, uh, and so when we found Sherry, our cinematographer, who is 100% the, the reason the movie looks as good as it does, she, we could tell, like, she could make stuff look incredible, but she wasn't a hard person to talk to and communicate with. And she was, and she was enthusiastic, like, like not only about getting good footage, but getting good footage that was right for the movie she was making. And it really is a beautiful film, so you can tell it, it works really well with the narrative, the style that it's filmed in. So you can tell that you all work together really well. Yeah, and that was important to us, like because because the story in and of itself does not scream, this is gonna look great. You know, records are flat black pieces of plastic. <laughs> a record store, despite the fact that they are wonderfully unique and individualistic places, fundamentally geometrically speaking is long rows of squares of cardboard like like it and our movie was mostly going to be people sitting in chairs and talking so we're like this is we're going to have to do something to make this not visually boring because like if it's visually boring it shouldn't be a movie like it should be it should be something else entirely and so working with someone like Sherry was a big part of that. And, and that was true at every stage of this production. We were like, we were like, we have an idea, we know the story we want to tell, and we fully accept that movie making is a collaborative process. And we want to, and we want people who are the best at what they do to be part of making this thing happen. The thing is bigger than the two of us. Like we were definitely not like, and Chris and I talked about this. Chris is like, 
this film is not going to have a film by Kevin Smokler and Chris Boone at the front of it. Like, like, because lots of people make a movie and I don't believe in that sort of thing. And I'm like, all right, like I got, I got no particular attachment to a, a credit. Like, um, I just want to make a good movie. And so, yeah, we were like, we were like with the little resources and money we had, we're like, we need the best composer. We need the best music supervisor. We need the best cinematographer. We need the best post-production people working on this. So, there's a little bit of that when you write a book, like, like you don't design the cover yourself. You don't, hopefully you don't, I don't, I certainly don't copy edit and proofread because I would really suck at that. Same. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so there's a little bit of that, but most of it is you and you're treated like this, like, like this, this, this prize steer in a feeding pen when you're the when you're the uh when you're the author it's like because it all seems to to come directly from 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 your insides and and i i get that to a certain degree but like to make something that that's equally creatively challenging with other people was just a totally different gear for me and i was super i was super excited about that i don't know like like i my my next book is a book of interviews and I think that is in part because I do not, particularly after making this movie, I do not wish to go off, you know, to the front lines again alone and, and, and send dispatches back. I'd rather be, I'd rather spend my days writing this book, talking to people. Yeah. Uh, there's so many good jewels in what you just said. <laughs> One, that gave me so much hope because I always think, like, I know how to tell stories and I write visually. My The way I was trained as a writer was a screenwriter. That's how I started. I didn't get into fiction until later. In fact, one of my screenwriting teachers, we had done a practice short story and he's like, this is really good. You should maybe think about writing novels. And so that was like, but my my start, my everything was screenwriting. And what, but when I I was horrible at the technical aspect of it. I could tell the story, but I couldn't get the camera to work. And so I gave up on filmmaking because I couldn't figure out how to work the camera. And I think that as I got older, I realized, Lauren, you don't have to know how to work the camera. Like I gave up on having a book that had illustrations and children's books because I don't know how to draw. Lauren, you don't have to know how to draw. You only have to know the part that you know. So that was inspiring for me. I also love that you said you were not particularly attached to the credit, which I think is really great. And it led me to a question I wanted to ask you because you've done so much in this world. I think that we, we constantly think of writing success, like being a successful author or being a successful creative as winning the Pulitzer, hitting the New York Times bestseller, like making millions and being able to quit your day job or, or all these ideas we have of what actually defines success for a writer. And I was wondering, what does success look like for you when it comes to writing and when it comes to creating stories and putting them out in the world? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you, you touched upon something very important there because like if success is something we're going to be striving for and spending an enormous amount of time, money, energy, sweat, aiming towards, well, then why let someone else define it? Like, like that seems, that seems to be, that, that, like that, that, that does not feel evolved to me. That feels like when you're when you're 11 or 10 and you let your parents say or, or your school say, well, an A is success. So aim for an A or, or winning the scholarship or the track meet or the, you know, the, 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 the music contest or something like that. That's success. So aim for that. OK, well, 
that happens when you're young because you don't have the tools or the or, or the uh, or the you know the the you're not legally allowed to make your own decisions yet like once you're 18 it's kind of up to you and at that point like there's a lot of different versions of success you know there's a lot of different versions of success just in what we perceive as success uh, claudine rankin is a wildly successful poet but economically that that is small potatoes compared to being a wildly successful romance novelist and i'm sure claudine claudine ranking uh, despite winning every conceivable award a poet can win would like on, on on some on certain days would like some of that romance novelist scratch like but that's not the game she's in like like she's she 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 is and by the way i've never spoken to her before i don't know if that's her version of success or not Maybe her version of success was, I would really like a tenure track job at a university so I don't have to worry about paying my bills ever again. That's cool. Or maybe it was, you know, when she was a younger poet, maybe it was, I want to publish my first poetry collection. There's my definition of success. Okay. Those definitions are shifting because that's what ambition is. Like ambition is, okay, we aim for one thing and then we get that, then we aim for the next thing, then we get that, et cetera, et cetera. And we may never like you... Most likely, we are not going to scale the heights of our ambition. And frankly, it would be a little depressing if we did, because like, yes, I think it would be great to win a Pulitzer or great to like, you know, receive an honorary degree from a prestigious university, all that kind of stuff. And I know myself, then I'd wake up on Monday morning and I'd be like, okay, what am I supposed to do now? Am I supposed to like go play shuffleboard and, 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 you know, call someone else's grandkids for the rest of my life. Like, I mean, like, okay, then what? I mean, I think that's the only option. (laughs) Shuffleboard and calling other people's grandkids. Yeah. I mean, it's like, then what? It's like, do you really want to get to the end of the rainbow? No, you want to get to the end of the rainbow on like the day you die. Like, because then like, you're just sitting there at the end of the rainbow and you're like, okay, well now what? And you realize like the rainbow is the point, like not the end, mm-hmm. um, the different stages along the rainbow. And so I, 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 what I, yes, I have the same feelings of inadequacy and jealousy. And I wish I was further along than, I wish I was at the same stage that this person whom I admire or worse, this person whom I don't admire is, <laughs> is, is at. Uh, and it's unfair that they're there and I'm not. And then when I do that, I have to like, you have to like, you have to like recenter yourself and you have to say like, okay, like, but what are my definitions of success? And mine are like for now, the ones I keep coming back to are, do I get to do this every day? Yes. Do I get to point to what's on that shelf behind me, some small part of it and say, that's mine. I made that. Yes. Is it the truth? Yes. Um, Do I get to associate with people who interest me and inspire me? Yes. Do I get to, uh, uh, once in a while, hear from someone else that I inspire them? Yeah. Okay. That's a a really good baseline. Like, Like, that is a very solid hamburger right there. Like, I would like French fries and dessert and, 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 and other things with it. And to have it many, many times for many, many meals, but like to start with, like that is a, that is a solid hamburger. And I think you need that hamburger. And then like you can add stuff to it. Uh, and, and 
yes, except that you will you will have days where you're just like, well, it's really unfair that like that that person that person has a a ninety five dollar hamburger and I have a fifteen dollar hamburger. But like, but there's um, not much. It's still you get to eat a hamburger. Exactly. Like, well, the expensive steakhouse hamburger tastes almost as good as Shake Shack. Like they're a different kind of deliciousness. Yeah, yeah, and like, and the truth is, like, if you are doing this. Like, it's really important to remember, like, if you are doing this, if you are writing regularly, if you are producing things, whether or not they are published or not, you are further than 99% of the people out there who talk about doing it and don't. So, so you have already passed through, you're, you're in Oz at that point. Like, you've already gone through those big green gates. Like, it's just up to you, like, like what you do at this point. Yeah, I tell my clients a lot to kind of dream big, but set the lowest definition possible of success. So mm-hmm. you hit it and you know, you, then you set the next one, then you set the next one. Like, okay, did I sit in the chair today? Yeah, I didn't run anything, but I sat in the chair today. That's awesome. Uh-huh. That is my definition of success. Did I carve out that time in my schedule to write? Yes. Did I make it? Nope. That's okay. Tomorrow, you carved out that time. Like to, and maybe tomorrow I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write 30,000 words when I just sit down. But the chances are it's going to be showing up for those tiny successes that get to the big ones. So I try to set myself up for that lowest hanging fruit of success. That's still want that big one, right? Like I still want that big, I still keep that idea. And you have found success and you brought it up. And this is one of the things I was going to ask you about. Like I, I geek out. I, okay. If we're going to talk about jealousy, that Brat Pack America book, like you got to meet some of those cult classic people. Well, while reading it and I, while writing it. And one of the things that I love that you said is like, when you're doing interviews, you're not alone in the process. And I am jealous as somebody who misses the days of, I used to interview famous people for the magazines I was in and getting to talk to like them. That's why I started a podcast, right? I get to talk to interesting people like you. So I want to know what are some of those really cool people, whether they're famous or whether they were people who loved vinyl like you, what are some of these store people that you've gotten to meet through the process of showing up and being interested in following your curiosity as a storyteller? Oh God, there's really been a lot. Like I've been really fortunate that way. And some of them are just people I know, I know, I know professionally because I met them through a professional context. And I wouldn't say like, I I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm not friends with them or anything like that, but like, you know, like, like I, John Leguizamo was doing a show in San Francisco um, a few years back, and I convinced someone from the local public radio station that I I should go interview him because he's someone whose career and work I've admired from a very for a very long time, and I, unsurprisingly, John Leguizamo is a fantastic interview. Like like you do, I think I asked him three questions the whole time, and he just sort of and 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 he has a million brilliant things to say. He is mostly like interested in, uh, he's really committed to the work. He's really interested in talking about the work. And so he's, he's as anyone in his position would be, he's pleased when you've prepared. And like, I, I, I don't wish to waste anybody's time. I think it's, I think it's uncool. And so I, I always prepare really extensively when I'm going to talk to someone. And, um, and I make sure that uh, I'm there as someone who is giving deep and due consideration to their work. And that's my job. Uh, and so it was really cool to like spend an hour on the phone with him. It was really like, um, like I, I met a couple of people in doing Brat Pack America that I, that 
that I wouldn't have met otherwise. And, and it's just been fascinating getting to know their work. I wouldn't say I know them super well, but like I, I, I've been on a couple of, I, I, I've run into Marilyn Vance, who was the costume designer for The Breakfast Club a few times. And that's a, that's a, that's a movie that presents a really interesting costume challenge because it's in exactly one setting on one day of the year. And it's not, it's not like, you know, it's not like you get an opportunity to like dress the actors differently a bunch of different times. But I think that movie is brilliantly costumed. Agree. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, the costume designer, like, of course you'd want to talk to that. That's such an interesting, again, following your curiosity. Oh, there's this interesting thing here. Let's write about that or let's follow that or let's talk to that person about that. Yeah. It was really fascinating to get to talk to her a couple of times. I, I, I appeared in a, in a, in a library panel with, um, with a guy named Billy Higgins, who was a location scout in Chicago. And he was, he worked very closely with John Hughes on, on figuring out where like John Hughes should film his movies. I didn't know anything about the process of location scouting, particularly in the days before digital photography, where, where location scouts spent half their time, like in the photo lab, just like, printing stuff to, to show to, um, to the filmmaker uh, the next day. So uh, that was really interesting. And, and then like, you know, and then like, of course, like through making Vinyl Nation, you know, we got to, we got to meet, you know, musicians and record store owners and people who run record manufacturing plants and people who work at labels. And there's a whole, there's a whole infrastructure, a whole ecosystem that's there to, to, to bring your music to you. Um, and so that was, that was really fascinating. You know, we, we, John Vanderslice, the great, the great musician and owner of a recording studio is in our movie. And we filmed him at his recording studio and, uh, and he was like, okay, I, you guys need to come in here at 8.30 and be gone by 9.30. And we're like, okay, we just figured like the guy has a busy day and this is what he can give us. And we're like, fine, we show up, we do the thing. And we realize as we're filming him in the control room, there's like, there's like a band setting up like on the other side of the glass. And then like, and, and, and assistants are coming in and out and saying, can you sign this and can you do that? And I, I remember at some point I turned to Chris and I'd be like, oh, he's, he's getting us in here at 8.30 in the morning because the way our recording studio works is like they have to bill for every second they are open. Like, and, and we, he makes nothing off of us. Like, like so, so a recording studio, yeah, a recording studio is that kind of thing. Like it is only, it can only exist if it can bill for the time. Like it's like a roller rink, like in that way. Like, so um, that was totally unique. I'd never been in a recording studio before. Like I didn't know like what, where albums were made like so this is a this is a long answer to your question but those are the kinds of people i have i have gotten to know through my work uh that are in my work and then there are people who do there are people who do uh the same thing i do or similar things that i do that um whose work i admire a great deal and i am fortunate really fortunate to call uh friends and and teachers you know I, I i feel like i feel like i've been really really lucky that writers i admire are also people that i have um, that i can i can spend social time with as well i love those two questions back to back defining success and your answers to them defining success and the people you get to meet because part of what you answered when you talked about success is like do i get to do i get to write do i get to be a writer and do i get to meet interesting people and i think that we define success monetarily. We define success by those like vanity metrics, right? But one of the most amazing things about being a writer is getting to talk to other writers and getting to explore a subject. Like 
whether it's fiction or nonfiction, you get to delve into that world. Elizabeth Gilbert talks about randomly meeting a bryologist who talked about moths nonstop. And all of a sudden she wrote signature of all things. And that was her post eat, pray, love. I mean, she had committed between the two, but that was her comeback, right? Her, her like, okay, how am I going to deal with the success of this massive runaway hit memoir? And my second memoir that flopped, I'm going to write about moss. Like what? But the book is amazing because she became interested in moss. And she talks about some of the most amazing people she's met in her career were the people who studied moss, not like Oprah, but the people who studied moss. So if we define success as getting to meet interesting people, this is one of the most successful careers you can have, right? Oh yeah, uh, entirely. Like I, I remember like, and I think I first realized that in college um, when I started when I started watching Ken Burns movies. I feel I felt like that was a way to like learn about stuff, like and watch TV at the same time. Like, um, and I realized that like every person they talked to, like every every person who was like a, a talking head on there, most of the time had a writer underneath as their name. I'm like, I'm like, okay, so you mean you mean that there's someone there with the title writer and and this is about the civil war and this is about baseball and this is about jazz and this is about national parks and this is about and and writer gets to do all of those like that's that's like a passport to the world man like i i i really i'm really interested in that and like yeah i mean i i would love to know more people whose whose interests were a little bit further afield than mine but I also feel like what I choose to do for a living, that will happen. Like, like that will, I, I am happiest when I'm learning something and exploring the thing I want to learn. And, uh, and so that's like, to me, like, like if you're, if you're always curious, like to state the obvious, you're never bored. Like you're never, um, you never, you never say like, like, why did I get up this morning? I love that. I feel like that's a really beautiful place to end our interview, uh, just that idea of being a writer is having a passport to the world. And if you're always following your curiosity, you're never bored. And that is success in and of itself. That is amazing. That is something a lot of people can't say about their jobs. So I love that yeah. you get to say it about yours and you don't ever keep me bored. I love all the amazing information that you share and you, your passion shines through. And when you're writing, it shines through. And when you're making documentaries, it shines through. So I love that. If people want to explore more of your passion and your curiosity how can they do that yeah i mean my sort of home base on the internet is kevinsmokler.com my last name is spelled s-m-o-k-l-e-r the dedicated site for the movie where you can buy your ticket and watch it is vinylnationfilm.com purchasing a ticket through a local movie theater or record store where you live half of the proceeds for that ticket go to support that institution in a particularly difficult time for movie theaters and record stores and on the socials i spend most of my time on twitter at weegee w-e-e-g-e that's amazing i highly suggest people go and watch the film because it's it makes you feel less alone in this time of quarantine and it makes you understand this beautiful renaissance that's happening with vinyl records that you might not otherwise know exists. So highly suggest that. And I love all your books, but really, really suggest Brat Pack America because that's a great one to watch along with 80s teen films, which I'm a big fan of. 
Thank you again for coming on, Kevin. And oh, all those links to everything will be in the show notes. So don't worry, folks. We got links for you. Uh, Thank you again for coming on, Kevin. It is always amazing to chat with you. You are one of my favorite people to have a conversation with. So thank you again for coming on to the School for Writers podcast. Oh, you're welcome, Lauren Fleming. The feeling is 100% mutual. Have a wonderful day. And I cannot wait to chat with you again. week's book recommendation is Brat Pack America, a love letter to 80s teen movies by none other than our own Kevin Smokler, who you just heard from. Okay, I know you heard me wax poetically about this, but y'all, I am such a fan of 80s teen movies. They were what got me through high school. I felt less alone. I wasn't the only angsty teen out there. I remember I was having I I joke about it, but I was having a really, really, really hard time in high school. High school was a hard time to be an openly gay person in a conservative farming town. And I had, you know, my dad had cancer. I had a lot of trauma that happened. And 80s teen movies got me through. They really did. They got me through. A therapist suggested that I watch the Brat Pack movies, and they changed my life. And so to have this book that talks not only about the Brat Pack, but it's a love letter to 80s teen movies. It's written by somebody who also found joy and comfort and felt less alone in them, my friend Kevin. And it is a great, I find that it's really helpful. So I, if I go and watch the movies, I'm re-watching Brat Pack movies with my nieces now because they're about the age to watch. They can't watch all of them, but I'm re-watching some of them. And I love just reading through okay so i'm about to read i'm about to watch the brat the breakfast club i'm gonna go read all about the breakfast club i'm gonna watch goonies i'm gonna go read all about goonies and i love that it centers on the locations they were in because john hughes films felt like they were could have been my hometown they felt like i could have these these could have been me these people are speaking my story they're in my town so it really focuses a lot on the locations they were set and the backstories is great Really great backstories in it all. So if you're a big fan of 80s teen movies, I'm not normally one to suggest like more academic books or books that this isn't really an academic book, more books that are like nonfiction delving into subjects, but I 100% am here for it if it's a subject I love. And I love 80s teen movies. And I love the way Kevin just geeks out with me over them in the book. It's like having a great conversation with an intellectual person who came prepared and also loves it as much as you do. So go buy yourself a copy of Brat Pack America, a love letter to 80s teen movies by Kevin Smokler. You just finished another lesson at Business School for Writers. Feels pretty great, right? Being one step closer to a thriving writing career. I am so excited to see how you put to use the tips you learned today. So please share what you gained from this episode in the Writer Squad Facebook group. You can find your squad at facebook.com slash groups slash writer squad. Want even more support making your writing dreams come true? Go to businessschoolforwriters.com where not only can you find show notes and links from today's episode, but you'll also be able to explore courses, coaching, and free resources we've gathered together to help you along your path to creating a thriving writing career. Thanks again for listening to the Business School for Writers podcast. I'll see you in the next lesson. Business School for Writers is hosted and produced by Lauren Marie Fleming with editing and support from Samantha Olivares. All rights reserved by Las Maestras LLC. Our music is De Lejos by Ila Bamba. Check them out on Spotify. Big thanks to the team at Terrorbird and to Kristen Hozak. And of course, big thanks to you, the listener. Now put down this podcast already and go write. 
I'll see you next episode. Pura fuego,